When Abraham was 90, I'm sorry, when Abram, he hasn't been changed yet, was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offsprings after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offsprings after you. And I will give to you and your offsprings after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offsprings after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offsprings after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any circumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Good morning, church. It's good to see everyone. Uh, Before I get into the message, I just wanted to say uh, real quick um, that, you know, we have been uh, searching for staff members for about a year now, a little more more than a year, and uh, I'm real pleased to tell you that uh, an offer has been extended to uh, a couple to take our student ministry position, and it's been accepted, and we will introduce this new family to you here in the weeks ahead, but we do have that position filled for our church, which is a real blessing. Amen. And I want to thank the search committee and all the hard work they did in locating uh, this individual. Well, there are different comedians in our culture that I enjoy. I love Jeff Foxworthy, uh, for example. Another one that I like, a guy is by the name of Bill Ingvall. How many of you know who Bill Ingvall is? Uh, a lot of you do, and most of you don't. He, he has made his entire career around a little saying, here's your sign, here's your sign. And, and the premise behind this is he, what he does is he plays off the dumb and even the stupid things that people do sometimes and that should earn them a sign that they wear around their neck that says, you know, beware of me or I'm dumb or whatever so that we know what we're working with when we interact with these people, right? And uh, he, so he gives an example. He was selling a truck and uh, the guy comes and he examines the truck top to bottom and then he takes it for a test drive. And when he gets back from the test drive, the very first thing he does is he walks around to the back of his truck and he grabs the exhaust pipe. Right, you know? And then he screams, that's hot, you know? Oh, I burned my hand. And Bill, here's your sign, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And, uh, and, and the truth be told, of course, is uh, we all have this tendency. We've all had those moments, right, where we, uh, we do something and it's just like, oh, what was I thinking, you know? We've all earned that little sign that we should have to wear around our neck. But there's plenty of times when perhaps we are in a situation and it's not quite so humorous, right? 
We go through a, a situation in our life, something occurs, maybe in our work, in our personal life, in our, in our neighborhood, and it's, it's not funny, it's not enjoyable, it's something that maybe is painful and even bad that happens, and at some point, we look back at it and we say, how did I miss that? The signs were all there, right? It was, it was there. How many times have I had a man or a woman in my office through the years of pastoral ministry counseling with something that's going on in their marriage and hear them say these words, I should have seen this coming. The signs were all there. They were in our dating relationship and I just ignored them. I thought they would get better after marriage. By the way, it never gets better after marriage. If you're single, remember that. Best advice you're ever gonna hear. Never gets better after marriage, right? Those of you who have maybe family members or friends who are addicts or have struggled with addiction, and you know all the upheaval that happens in your life and in your family's life, and you sit there maybe for years scratching your head because addicts are so good at deceiving us, right? And then finally, when the truth comes out, we look at it and go, the signs are right in front of me the entire time. What was wrong with me? Why didn't I see what was happening here? Okay. Well, we are in a message called a new sign. Last week, we saw part one, we hit the pause button, and now we're gonna pick back up on this idea of a new sign. And so last week, as we jumped into chapter 17, where God is finalizing the covenant with Abraham, he inaugurated it in chapter 15, and now in chapter 17, he is finalizing. The very first thing we saw, just kind of by way of review, to level set those of you who maybe missed part one, the very first few verses put before us the, the, the creator of the covenant. God, for the first time in the Old Testament, reveals himself as El Shaddai, the almighty, omnipotent God, the God who we are to walk before blamelessly. And this idea of walking before him blamelessly is that he is that omnipotent king. We are his vassals. We are his servants. And now the agenda of our life goes out the door and the agenda becomes his agenda. We are here to serve him and his kingdom and his kingdom agenda, and we are to do so with integrity. And then as we move from there, we got into the, the meat of the covenant. Those first three verses are like the preamble of the ancient suzerain treaties, and where they introduce the almighty king and put before you the introduction, but the sense of the covenant is where you find these obligations that God puts upon himself and upon Abraham. The, the obligation that God takes on is it wrapped up in that phrase, I will be God to you. And in that phrase, in the succeeding verses, he puts before Abraham how he is going to give him an eternal inheritance. He's going to give him a new identity. He goes from Abram to Abraham, the father of a multitude. He gives him the promise of, of an inheritance and a posterity, specifically that he is going to have a son through the womb of Sarah. And here they are at this point in time, you know, 89 and 99 years old or roughly in that area. This is why that opening, El Shaddai, the omnipotent God is so important because only El Shaddai can make something like this happen within the natural world. And so God's obligation in this covenant is I will be God to you. Abraham's obligation is you shall keep my covenant. 
This idea of walking before me and being blameless, that stipulation, there's one stipulation in this covenant. Take on the sign of circumcision. You'll circumcise yourself, your entire family. This is how you obey the covenant that I'm making with you. And so that led us to the section that we stopped in last week, the sign of the covenant. We talked about what a sign is. A sign signifies. It, it teaches us something. It informs us about something that is very important. It's oftentimes a, a symbol or an illustration, a visible illustration that is meant to help us to understand the deeper reality of what is going on in, the, in our life and in our world or in the kingdom of God. And so a sign points us to a deeper reality that God wants us to understand. And so we ask the question, what did circumcision signify? What was the deeper reality that God wanted us to grasp by giving us the sign of circumcision? And that's kind of where we left off last week as we began to explore a couple of those, and we'll pick up here in a moment. But you know, it's possible that some of you right now are wondering, why does the sign of the Abrahamic covenant matter to us when we live under the new covenant and we relate to God through Jesus Christ and the covenant that he inaugurated? We have to understand and realize that like the new covenant, the Abrahamic covenant is one chapter within God's book of grace. I've used this analogy for you now a few times, and I really want you to get this into your head. Remember, we're building our foundations of faith in this entire annual theme where we're revisiting and shoring up things that can kind of get lost over time. And God has this covenant of grace with humanity throughout scriptures. And think of it as if there are chapters within this overall book. And there was a chapter with Noah. And there was a sign attached to that chapter, the rainbow. We have a chapter here with Abraham in this covenant of grace. And there's a sign attached to this covenant. We're gonna see in the future with Moses that with the old, what we call the old covenant, there's a sign and a meal attached to the old covenant with David later on, several hundred years more, there's a sign. You see there's a pattern here. And what we need to understand is that these truths and principles that are introduced in earlier chapters of this book of grace often carry over from chapter to chapter and have carried over to us today. God establishes some things in Noah, with Noah, or with Abraham, or with Moses, or with David, that very much apply to us. God has taught us things about himself in these earlier chapters of grace that are still true today. They carry over to the new covenant and we need, to, we need to get a hold of this. So we're gonna see more of this at the end of the message, especially as we put before you some practical applications for us who live under the new covenant. But for right now, let's go back to that question. What does circumcision signify? What's the deeper reality that God is communicating with the sign of the covenant? He says in verse 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. 
The first thing that we saw last week is that circumcision signified membership in the visible covenant family and participation in his blessings on his people. If you receive the sign of the covenant, and in this case, it even tells us to put it on the infants when they're eight years old, they're to be circumcised. If you receive that covenantal sign, you are now made a part of God's visible covenant family. If you don't receive the sign of the covenant, you're cut off. You're not a member of God's covenant family. Second thing that we saw, is that, that circumcision is a physical outward sign which points to a deeper spiritual reality. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse six, the Bible tells us, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Everyone needs to have the spiritual uncleanness of their heart cut away, removed, to have the relationship with God made whole. And this is something that only God can do for us through salvation. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 30, God is telling his people, yes, you've got the external sign of circumcision, but what's more important is the fact that you need to be circumcised in your heart. This is the deeper reality that circumcision is pointing us to at the spiritual level. Okay, that's all last week, okay? And why is it that I can do that in 12 minutes this week and it took me 38 last week? I don't know, but... Don't get any ideas in your head. Okay, let's bring you something new. Thirdly, third way that this is important, participation in the physical sign did not guarantee membership in the invisible eternal covenant family of God. We learn the significance of circumcision. It points to several different realities. It points us to the reality that we need to be cleansed on the inside. But it also points us to the reality that just because you get the outward sign doesn't mean that the inner, reality, the inner transformation takes place in somebody's life. And this was the problem in the nation of Israel by the time that Jesus was there. And really for centuries, they took their legalistic rote obedience to the Abrahamic covenant as the means for salvation. This meant I'm fine with God. Everything is okay. I can go live however I want because I've been circumcised. I'm part of God's chosen people. I'm great with God. And the reality was very different. Paul in Romans chapter two, as he's speaking to the Jews and Gentiles of that church says, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So just because you're circumcised doesn't make you a Jew. What makes you a Jew is if, if what the reality behind that sign has actually occurred in your life. That's what makes you a descendant of Abraham. This is why you and I are Abraham's sons and daughters, because as Galatian teaches us, when we trust in Jesus Christ, we now participate in the reality of what is being pointed to in the Abrahamic covenant. Now, a fourth way that a fourth thing that we learn from this sign. 
Circumcision involved the shedding of blood and it pointed the Old Testament saints to their coming Messiah. The scriptures tell us in Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Circumcision was a sign to those Old Testament saints of what their Messiah would have to experience so that they could become the complete people of God, become members of God's eternal, invisible family, and have their sins forgiven. The cutting off of the foreskin pointed to the future spiritual reality that Jesus would have to be cut off from his heavenly Father so that our sins could be forgiven and we could become the people of God, so we could become true Israel. Finally, with circumcision, the head of the household was expressing his willingness to devote everything and everyone in his home to the Lord. Remember how I said things carry over from one covenant to the next, to the next, to the next. And one of these things that we sometimes grapple with and have a hard time getting our heads around is this idea that, okay, Abraham believes, right? He's following God. There are clearly members of his family that are not following and buying into Abraham's faith. Ishmael is one of them, for example. Yet on the very day that Abraham gets this command from God to apply the sign to himself, he's also apply it to his entire household, which we know from other chapters is several hundred male members by this point in time. And yet all of them are not in the faith of Abraham, yet they receive the sign. Brian Chapel writes, in contemporary culture, we are not as accustomed to thinking of the head of a household as deciding the spiritual commitments of all its dependent members. However, the biblical perspective is that the head of the household represent the family to God and commits them to his worship. The representative role of heads of households had great spiritual precedent and rich implications in both the Old and the New Testaments. So Abraham is the head of the house and he sets the direction of that home. Everyone who was under his authority is at this point an entire clan and clans of people. The men received this sign. You see this further in the new covenant. For example, most of the baptisms that you see in the New Testament are household baptisms. One of the best examples of it is Paul and Silas are in jail in Philippi. Remember the story in the book of Acts? They're in prison. They are miraculously released. The Philippian jailer commits his life to Christ and trusts in him. And the Bible says that very night, he and his entire household are baptized by Paul and Silas. Now, did that mean that everyone in his household was converted and became a true believer in Jesus Christ? No. In all likelihood, and that's not the case. He was, he was a rich, wealthy man. He had children and wife, a wife. He had servants, and then no doubt because of his status in society at that time. It doesn't mean that every one of those people immediately trusted Christ and then was baptized. This is this household idea. We see it again in 1 Corinthians 7, where, where the, the, the believing wife, 
is under a husband. Remember, he sets the tone for the house and the believing wife is now in this relationship, maybe with a pagan husband, and they're asking the question, do I divorce him? Can I leave him and leave this family and start a new life with maybe a believing husband? And God's answer to this woman or to the man is no. As long as that husband wants to have you as his wife, you should stay in that home. And here's the reason God gives. He says, because your presence in that home makes your unbelieving husband and your unbelieving children holy. Literal words from 1 Corinthians 7. Now, does that mean that they automatically receive the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they automatically are now assured of a place in God's eternal kingdom? No, that's not what it means. What it means is because of the presence of that sanctified, saved person in that home who's now a part of the new covenant of Jesus Christ, the blessings of God through that new covenant that come to that believing parent also affect the children and the spouse who are in the home with them. God has a special place in his heart for the children of his believing children. And they enjoy blessings of God's covenant with us through our faith. They have a special place. So what does this have to do with us as followers of Christ, right? Let's ask the question, ready? Here we go. So what? So what? Okay, 21st century America, circumcision isn't a thing anymore necessarily. How does this relate to us? Well, we need to understand the basic structure of the covenant and the the importance of the sign of the covenant. We, We didn't get to go into the seal, the idea that the seal is God's way of authenticating and obligating himself to bring to us the blessings of the covenant. The sign and seal language that Paul uses in Romans 4.11. It's important for us to understand that that the sign of the new covenant isn't just a a light ritual that we do, you know, on autopilot. No, it means something. It means something to God. It obligates him to the blessings of the new covenant, giving them to us and to our children. It obligates us back to our Savior to live a life that is you know, surrendered to him. This is important for us to understand. So let's go and close out this morning with three applications from this aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. The first one is this, as God did with the Abrahamic covenant, he gave us, uh, as, as God did with the Abrahamic covenant, he gave us a sign and seal with the new covenant, baptism. As he did with the Abrahamic covenant, he gave a sign and a seal, circumcision. He's done the same thing with the new covenant, baptism. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 28 that we are to go and make disciples, teaching them to obey and observe all things, whatever I've commanded to you. And what are we supposed to do to those disciples? We are to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the sign of the new covenant, not circumcision, because in the new covenant, it's neither male nor female, Jew or Gentile, bond or free, rich or poor. The sign can be put upon everyone, regardless of gender or background or whatever. 
In Colossians chapter two, the apostle Paul writes, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure, Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. In this passage, it's interesting how Paul links the idea behind circumcision, the cutting away of that sinful nature to what baptism also does. In our baptism, we are unified and united with Christ, and it represents something important. Baptism is to the new covenant what circumcision was to the old. In the same way, it's the cutting away of the sinful nature. It's having our sins being cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. It points us to that deeper reality of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which occurs at that point when we trust in Christ and commit to him as our Lord and Savior. And he is the one who cleanses us from sin, and he is the one who makes us whole. So, Think of it like this, first application. God has done with us in the new covenant what he did with Abraham, what he did with Moses, what he did with David. He has given us a sign with the new covenant and that new covenant sign is baptism. It has all of the implications and import that the previous signs have had. Second application, the one I really want you to take away with you this morning is that God's covenant people and their children should bear the sign of the covenant. Peter tells us in his sermon in Acts chapter two, you remember this sermon? It's the first sermon, the Holy Spirit has come. There's thousands upon thousands of Jewish men and women and children before him. Many in this crowd have crucified Christ and he preached a sermon that convicted them and they said, sirs, what must we do to be saved? And this is what Peter says. He says, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then pulling from the language of of Genesis 15 and 17, this is the language of the Abrahamic covenant, Peter says, this promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. This passage is important. It, It teaches us something extremely, extremely important. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, If he is your Lord and Savior, and you have never received the sign of his covenant, you should do so immediately. You should make a public testimony of your faith and your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. You should call Paxson, and we should schedule you to come up here and get wet, okay? This is the sign of God's covenant. There are blessings that come through this obedience to God, receiving this sign and proclaiming your allegiance to Jesus Christ. So if you believe and you have followed Jesus Christ and haven't been baptized, Peter says, get baptized. Remember, this is the first generation of Christians. They're all Jewish, right? None of them have been baptized before. They've all been circumcised. They're under the old covenant. 
the Abrahamic covenant. Now it's the new covenant. They all have to have the sign of the new covenant applied to them as part of their membership into the covenant family of God. But it also means that your children should receive this sign of the covenant. Now, I want to say up front, I recognize that there are differences in thought over the baptism of children who have not yet believed. I recognize this. So here's how we're gonna approach this this morning. And I don't have enough time, so just we're gonna take our time. Because this is the first time in 13 years I've ever addressed this in a sermon at our church, right? It's way too long. Uh, I wanna give you, first of all, a caveat. Then I'm gonna give you a warning. I'm gonna make a general observation. And then I'm gonna leave you with four questions. So I want you to have your phone out. I want you to take pictures of these questions and you can discuss them in your covenant group this week because they're good questions to ponder. So first of all, here's the caveat. For those of you who don't know my story, um, I have come to the Reformed Presbyterian Evangelical Church, not through heritage, but really through conviction. I've always been evangelical, but I haven't always been Reformed and Presbyterian. For 32 years, I was associated with various Baptist denominations. I was raised from, I mean, within days of birth, I was in a Baptist nursery. I went to a Baptist Christian school. I went to a Baptist university. I got my master's from a Baptist seminary. And I was an ordained pastor and uh, served in Baptist churches for 15 of those 32 years, okay? That's my heritage. And then in 1998, because of preaching through books of the Bible and just seeing things in the scriptures that had never made sense through my education, the dots started connecting and, and I walked away from that and I stumbled into a PCA church. And for 23 years now, I have been in leadership as either an elder or on staff in some way in PCA churches. So what I'm saying to you is, I come to this issue having lived for more of my life within the, the, the camp of God that says you should not baptize your children until they profess faith in Jesus Christ. For many years, I believed in a concept, because this is what I was taught, what is known as believer's baptism. It took a while for me to realize that no, what the Bible is teaching us is not this idea of believer's baptism, it's teaching us covenantal baptism, that baptism is the sign of the covenant. So I come with that background. I want you to know that. Now here's a warning. While baptism is important, it should not divide the family of God. Okay? It shouldn't divide us at all. Baptism shouldn't be so important to any of us that we make it a litmus test as to membership or participation in a local church. It shouldn't be so important to us that we make it a litmus test, that you cannot join our church or you cannot participate in our church unless you have been baptized. I, I so appreciate John Piper. John Piper's Baptist pastor. Many of you know him from Desiring God. He pastored Bethlehem Baptist Church for 30, 40 years. And they came to a quandary. They had all of these people moving into Minneapolis. Many of them come from the PCA. We, we virtually agree on everything except this subject of baptism. 
And so here's people from the PCA and other denominations wanting to join Bethlehem Baptist Church. And John Piper, their, their status for years had been, you must be rebaptized. And what this was causing was consternation in the hearts of very genuine Christians who believed that their baptism as infants was important and it was legitimate and that was fulfilling what the Bible, and so some were not becoming members, others were almost going against their conscience. And finally, the, the leadership of Bethlehem Baptist, the elders there, passed a policy and it says, while we don't agree with our Reformed Presbyterian brothers who are coming to our church on this issue, it's wrong for us to incite them to sin against their conscience or go against their conviction. And it's wrong for us to bar them from membership in a local body of believers that they can align with so well. And so they said, while we may not agree with this on the script, this is a, this is a secondary matter. We can give grace here. And, and by the way, that's the posture of our church. Many of you don't, well, are not gonna agree with some of the things that I'm teaching here this morning, and that's okay. Our five vows for membership don't mention baptism. And one of the good reasons why is, is it's not a litmus test for membership in God's church. Jonathan Culley has said numerous times through the years, he had a mentor early in his Christian walk who asked the question, and I think it's a legitimate question to bring up, why would we make entrance in requirements into the local church more rigid than the entrance requirements into the kingdom of God? That is a great question. Church, the thief on the cross was never baptized. He woke up in glory as a member of the kingdom of God. We do not have to be baptized to be joined to God's eternal family. We trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior alone. That's what makes us a member of that eternal family. So there's a warning. And a caveat, how about an observation? The observation is this. Christians everywhere acknowledge and instinctively know that our unbelieving children should be included in God's visible covenant family. For the 15 years that I was a Baptist pastor, I did a ton of baby dedications, okay? So I, I have fun with my Baptist brothers now. And in my way, again, we're on great relationship. And when they say, yes, but the New Testament doesn't tell you to baptize your infants. And I look at them and say, yes, the New Testament doesn't tell you to dedicate your infants. So why do you do it? Because we know instinctively that our children are supposed to be a part of God's visible family. They're not supposed to be secondhand citizens of God's visible church who have no place within it. So we all believe in infant baptism. Don't care what the denomination is. If it's a Christian denomination, we all believe in infant baptism. This question, is it gonna be a wet baptism or a dry baptism? but we all believe in infant baptism, okay? But I believe it should be wet. And here's why. I wanna give you four questions to ponder, and this is how we'll close out this morning. First of all, where does God in the new covenant tell us to not apply the sign of his covenant to our children? Where does he tell us to not put the sign on our children? You see, this 
truth, this precedent is established in Genesis chapter 17. It is the truth of God as much as El Shaddai, which we continue to believe in the new covenant was established in Genesis chapter 17. Just because it's not repeated in the new covenant verbally doesn't mean that the precedent has now ended. For it to end, we would look for God to tell us in the new covenant, stop applying the sign to your children. After all, isn't that what he did with other aspects of the old covenant? Didn't he tell us that it was okay for us to now have pulled pork and shrimp? Yes. He said, you no longer have to abide by the dietary codes. Didn't he tell us that circumcision is no longer necessary for the Gentiles? Yes. There's all kinds of things that he told us in the New Testament that that were happening in the old that are not in place. But by the way, there are things that we still believe today that are not repeated and established in the new covenant, but we look to the old for the justification. Nowhere in the new, I hate to be as as blunt as this, but nowhere in the new covenant does it say pedophilia is a sin and that you shouldn't be a pedophile. So does any of us here think that now that's okay because it's not repeated in the new covenant? Of course not. Why? Because the precedent of what God revealed in previous chapters in his book of grace. There's all kinds of things in those previous chapters that you and I believe that are not explicitly restated in the new covenant. And we believe them because they were never prohibited and abrogated, right? The same thing is true when it comes to our children. Second question, is it in keeping with the character of God to exclude a group in the new covenant that was included in the old, especially when the new covenant is more inclusive, less restrictive, and more gracious. More of God's grace is on display in the new covenant. Aren't you thankful for that, ladies? Ladies, aren't you thankful for that? Yeah. The new covenant is a bigger tent. Now it's not just Jews and the emphasis really being much more on the males. Now it's Jews, male and female, and Gentiles, male and female. All kinds of cultural and other boundaries are broken. If we don't apply the sign of the covenant to our infants, they are literally the only example in the new covenant that is more restrictive, less freedom, less grace, than the old. Does that make sense? That that is who our God is? To take away a group that was included before? Thirdly, if baptism in the new covenant is believer's baptism and not covenantal baptism, how do you explain all the references to household baptisms? I talked about household baptism a few moments ago. I'm not going to retread that ground. But you have to ask the question. Now, the only way you can get around this is to say, well, you're just assuming that all of those people were not saved. You're just assuming that there was an infant in that family. You're right. 
And it's a reasonable assumption that out of all of the household baptisms that are in the New Testament, there was at least one unsaved person, one infant or little child who had not yet expressed faith, okay? I mean, if we, if we step back and we approach this objectively, we would see what's happening in the household baptisms is the same as what happened with Abraham and Genesis 17. And just as he didn't have believers in his family, in all likelihood, these families had those who were not a believer. Final question, and it's a goodie, all right? How would the typical Jew have understood Peter in Acts chapter two, verse 38 and 39? Remember, he says, repent and be baptized. And this promise is for you. And what was the next phrase? For your Come on, for your children and those who are far off. Far off is always a reference to Gentiles, things like that. How would they have understood what he was saying? Okay. They would understand it this, from their paradigm, what they were used to. Yeah, we get the sign of the covenant. Our children get the sign of the covenant. Eight-day-old boys, they get, the, you know, they get the sign of the covenant applied to them. Our children are part of the new covenant. They're part of the old covenant. So so flip it around just for a minute. If it was now the practice to exclude the children and only apply the sign of the covenant to true believers, how would Jewish converts have responded? If you were a Jew in that original audience and Peter was preaching this new covenant, receiving the sign of this new covenant, but in some way, which is not in the book of Acts, but in some way he communicated to you By the way, guys, there's a change here. Your infants are not included in the new covenant. They do not get the sign of the new covenant. If that's what he told you in that sermon and was being taught to those early Jewish Christians, what do you think the reaction, the natural reaction would have been? Why? Right? You would wanna know well, why the difference? And, and here's how you know that this is what they would have asked. What do you mean we can eat pork and shrimp? When that change was introduced, they asked questions. And the, epistle, the, the apostles wrote epistles answering all those questions that these early Jewish believers had because of the differences between the new covenant and the old covenant. Yet you don't have any questions in the New Testament along these lines. And I'm gonna tell you right now, this would have been right up there with the kosher eating restrictions, right? I mean, this was a big part of their identity. You mean our children don't go? You need to help us understand why this is different. And yet it's never asked. Why is that question never asked because it was just part of their belief system that the children were included. And the way we know this is because it was not an issue. It was not having to be addressed. It was accepted practice. And by the time you actually have some references to it, you're now into the mid 100s and early church fathers are referring to their baptism as infants and what that meant. And what's interesting is while they argued about all kinds of things in the first three or four centuries of the church and they wrote books and things like that, they didn't argue about this. 
It wasn't like, oh yeah, I was baptized as an infant, you know, at origins. I was baptized and this is what my dad, and it wasn't like somebody fired off a, you heretic, what were your parents? No, not at all. It was standard operating procedure. Why was it standard operating procedure in the 100s? Because it was standard operating procedure in the first century. It wasn't an issue. It was part of the belief system of the new covenant. Take those four, four questions. Think about them. And then close out this morning with a final application. You should understand that if you enter into a covenant relationship with God, it will absolutely, completely change your life. Abram's name is completely changed to Abram. Sarai to Sarah. The trajectory of their lives is uprooted and changed to something that's much more glorious. All their plans of Ishmael have to go out the window because Isaac is coming. And so if you are here this morning and you identify with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you identify with the new covenant and your life has not been changed, you need to seriously consider that you have simply participated in the physical sign of the new covenant and not the reality that it points to. Because when you believe the new covenant, and you are part of God's eternal covenant family, it will absolutely change your life. Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to look at this subject. God, I pray for those who are here. Maybe they've been following for years but have never been baptized. Would you give them the conviction of their, in heart and courage of soul to follow you in obedience and be baptized? Lord, we thank you for our children that we give that you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity to serve them. Lord, so much of what you teach about our children shapes who we are at Covenant. 80% of people who come into the kingdom come before the age of 18 years of age. So Lord Jesus, help us as Covenant members of this church and Covenant members of your eternal church to pour our lives into the vows that we make to serve our children, to love them, to minister to them, to give our money, to, to see them come to know you at an early age. We claim your covenant promises on their behalf. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.